Welcome to the Basketball Parents Journey Podcast, where we capture parents' stories about their journey so far and what has worked and not worked for them. Listen as parents share their wisdom across a wide spectrum of experience from beginners to college athletes and their recommendations for you as your player embarks on the next stage of their basketball journey from beginner to high school player and beyond. A lot of our parents are volunteer coaches. Um, it's a very high percentage of our total client base that uh, we end up finding out that they actually coach their son or daughter's team and uh, kind of reach that ceiling where their players no longer listening to them as dad, where they roll the eyes. And so they're seeking out professional help in the form of one-on-one training. And uh, it's usually a, a great uh, fit. We're able to connect with them on what's going on with their player because they have that kind of background knowledge of the, at least a volunteer coach level. And oftentimes they're sitting sideline watching what we're working on and taking some notes to take it back to uh, work with the rest of their teams. So I always enjoy talking to parents about, um, you know, all the different aspects of the kind of philosophy and style behind, you know, what we do on the court. So uh, I wanted to talk about how to evaluate coaches and programs. Uh, a very common concern that uh, parents come to us with is, you know, how do I figure out which program to play for? You know, how do I go to a tryout or, you know, maybe commit to a week-long camp with a program to kind of see what they're like and see if, you know, I actually want to play for a whole season of, you know, AAU basketball with this program? Or, you know, how can I tell based on what my coach is doing in the tryout or in the first couple practices, you know, if they really know what they're doing and you know, if they're going to be a, a real benefit to my player. So I came up with kind of off the, off the top of my head, you know, six, uh, six points for practice and six points for games that I would look at to really give me a litmus test for coaches and whether, uh, you know, they really were on the, level, I would say, of a competent coach, a credible coach, someone that, you know, legitimately is going to help your player improve. So let's go through practice first. The first one I see, um, you know, watching any rec level practice is how much time is spent talking versus action. So I'll see, you know, players sitting on the baseline or the sideline, and we have six baskets in the gym, but all the coaches, if there's, you know, one or two or three coaches, we're all standing watching just the five players that are running, you know, our set offense or our five on O play. And the other five to seven players are just sitting. And uh, to me, that's just, um, just horrible for the players. You know, they have this limited amount of practice time. You know, one of the big complaints a lot of coaches have is that they don't have enough practice time. We can't get in the gym. And, you know, they're underutilizing their resources by, you know, having the players sitting part of that time. And the other side of that is they're talking way too much compared to the time the players are in action. So, you know, it's, it's five minutes of talking to set up and explain a drill and five minutes more of an anecdote from the coach's past playing days. And then the players, you know, play for five or 10 minutes and then they're back to talking about the next drill. And even within playing, they might stop and talk again for, you know, one or two minutes in between as the players are in action and, you know, to players, you know, especially the age group that we work with, you know, fifth through 
10th graders, like they want action more than anything in the world. You know, the, the most common question uh, you would probably get as one of those coaches is when are we going to scrimmage, right? It's the, uh, the first thing that comes out of the player's mouth when, uh, you know, they're just bored. Honestly, they don't have, uh, they don't have enough action going on. So uh, the first one is talk time versus action time. You know, if it's a, uh, if it's 50, 50, uh, talk time to action, like the coach is probably not going to help your player all that much. Your player is going to get far more bored than they are going to get benefit out of going to one of those practices. Uh, number two is players standing in line or waiting on the sideline, right? We might have six baskets again. We might have a whole rack of basketballs, but we're using one ball, one basket, and the other players are waiting. Or we're running a drill that has a line that's, you know, six players deep when we couldn't do the same drill with another coach on another basket or even one coach, you know, bouncing back and forth between two baskets and setting things up so that players are actually maximizing their reps. Number three is coaching consistency across the staff. So, you know, one of the, one of the worst things you can see is that uh, different coach, different night, uh, you know, different philosophy of practice, different terminology they're using. Like there's no cohesiveness across the program. Uh, and that can really happen a lot in a rec program where, you know, from one team to the other, or even one, uh, you know, within a team, if you got a head coach and assistant coach, like they're talking way different philosophy. They're not on the same page, uh, especially across the whole program. If you're playing for an AU program, the coach that you might see in tryout might not be your team coach. And those two individuals might have wildly different, uh, you know, philosophies and styles of play and, uh, and terminology. And it really uh, is disruptive or inhibiting to the player when, you know, they don't know, you know, luck of the draw for this night of practice, you know, what we're really going to be dealing with. Um, number four is the game relevance of drills. Like, does it actually look like basketball action is taking place when they're running a drill? Or is it what I call a circus drill where we're, we're running here to run around that cone to run over here and run off of this? And like, we're just doing chaotic motion and calling it practice. And, you know, a lot of coaches try to, to turn up the knob of adversity for players and like create some wild chaotic situation to make it harder for the players what we really need is just more repetitions in actual game situations designing practice so that players are actually experiencing small snapshots of an actual game and they're able to troubleshoot that with repetition in a very small you know focused scenario it's really what we want to have so, you know, if the drills are off the wall all over the place, you know, I had one player tell me about their high school coach that had them dribbling up and onto a table and under ducking under a table. And just, there's a lot of nonsense out there. And, you know, I think you can scratch that team or that coach or that program off your lips pretty quickly. If you're seeing, you know, a lot of that, but I would, uh, I would make that a pretty high standard. Like if there's any of that, you know, you can probably safely walk away and find a better quality program. Number five is preparation. You know, do they have either on their phone or in a printed paper form, some kind of outline or checklist or practice plan that, you know, they're going off of, or is it, you know, the whim of the moment, we're going to work on this. And then because I'm feeling this way, I saw this, we're going to work on this next. You know, it could be yo-yoing players all over the place instead of having a kind of prepared, thoughtful, intentional progression of what we're going to work on in practice. And hopefully relating that to what we saw in last week's game, what we already worked on so far in the season, you know, what I know about these players, all that tied into, you know, a well-designed practice plan. 
And then number six is punctuality. You know, there's nothing worse than a coach walking in late when you're, uh, you know, making high demands of players to be on time. And there's also, uh, you know, a lot of problems with coaches ending practice on time. You know, we all get, uh, we all get wrapped up in our own favorite drill or the action, or, you know, sometimes it's the, the players driving a little bit. They want to finish a game that's tied or whatever, but, uh, you know, designing practice so that it can end on time. And of course, starting practice on time, uh, you know, the, uh, the integrity of doing what you ask your players to do, of being punctual. I think is a, a huge, uh, a huge indicator of a qualified coach, you know, or at least a, a qualified individual, regardless of their background or their knowledge of basketball, like if they can start and run practice on time and have a checklist that they're going to run through and they can limit how much time they talk and get players more action. Then you've probably seen enough signs to say, you know, this, uh, this team, this program is going to be a good fit. So let's flip over to talk about games. You know, what can you look for? in games that can really tell you whether this is a good quality coach, you know, or not. Uh, number one I look for is empowering players versus inhibiting players. You know, if that, if every time down the court, the players are all like looking over sideline at the coach for him to tell them what to do before they take an action, then they're inhibited. Like they're not able to really engage in the free flow that basketball is supposed to be. Uh, empowering would look like we've done our work in practice. Games are, the player's time to really take what they learned and apply it. And it's really inhibiting for a coach to get in the way of that. So send them out with some plan and some principles that they can operate on and then, you know, call a timeout, use the breaks between quarters or halftime to give them some more insights and, you know, adjust that on the fly. But it should be really the hive mind of five players operating together on the court versus the single brain on the sideline trying to dictate everything that happens. And uh, the more, the more dictated and scripted our offense and defense are usually the uh, lower quality program and the, uh, you know, the lower ability our players going to have to really make some progress. Uh, Number two is substitution consistency. One of the biggest parent complaints is that, you know, my player to get enough playing time and, you know, coaches should be consistent, whatever it is, you know, if it's a rec program, it's equal playing time. If it's a AAU program or a tournament team, like we're here to win, then substitutions are designed to win. And the worst player might not touch the floor if it's a tight game. Uh, Or I think worse than either of those two, which I think either of those is fine as long as it's consistent. That's really my main point. But the worst case scenario is it's whimsical. Like one game, it's all equal playing time. The next game, it's all over the place. Nobody played but the starting five. And players are all over the place. Who's starting? Who's not? How much playing time they get? It's different all the time. There's no explanation. There's no communication. Then I always tell coaches, parents assume the worst if you don't tell them what your intentional plan is. So A, have an intentional plan and B, communicate it well. That like we're here with this team to win this tournament. Might be that Johnny doesn't get to play at all, but we'll get him into the next tournament or the next game when we know, you know, we have a a lower quality competition team, whatever that looks like communication wise. Um, number three is preparation again, you know, some knowledge of your opponent. Uh, I'm usually of the philosophy, you know, I'm going to worry about us and optimizing our offense and defense. So, you know, come what may from the other team, we're going to be able to handle it, but, uh, you should have the ability to see from a coach, you know, as a coach, you should be able to know, you know, who your opponent is, maybe who their biggest scoring threat is, 
you know, if you're really doing it at a high level, find a way to watch some film of who they played in the past and see what you can grasp from that to help guide your team in the game. Uh, warm-ups, I'm a big fan of unique warm-ups that are designed to be a practice of something we're actually going to do in a game. So three-man weaves and layup lines, all the, all the traditional stuff is kind of a waste of time where players are coasting through the motions and, you know, not really achieving much. I'd rather be, you know, live one-on-one, live drive and kick, get some pieces of your offense in action right before they go into a game and get them really going game speed, game uh, action shots that they're taking as a warm-up. Um, well, I think that's probably low on the totem pole. Like I wouldn't quit a team because the coach doesn't have any, you know, actionable warmups, but I think it's something to uh, pay attention to better teams that have, again, even more intentional warmups that are designed to really get players moving. Well, I think is always a positive sign. Uh, and number five, emotionally stable. Uh, I think it's very possible for a coach to be excited and frustrated without punishing players, right? And, you know, going back to the players being empowered, you know, if the player is worried about the coach subbing them out and they're looking over after they make a mistake because their coach is going to flip his lid, you know, that is a big uh, negative sign in my mind of how the coach is reacting and how the coach has set up the team culture to operate we want it to be and eh, mistakes are okay i have high expectations which we'll talk about next um but at least i have a stable you know again consistent emotional reaction to the normal things that happen in the game i'm not going to be flipping my lid and getting technical fouls one game and you know giving players the cold shoulder the next game because they made a mistake like there's a lot of uh, a lot of emo- emotional manipulation that can come out of coaching, you know, if you're not really intentionally trying to be a stable force for the team. So I think as a parent, you know, watching a coach, even in a scrimmage game and a tryout, like if they're jumping and screaming and yelling at players and summing them out for mistakes, like all that is a negative sign that I would try to stay away from, find a higher quality program. Uh, and then the last one is the, the long-term versus short-term expectation of players. You know, I think it's great to have high expectations. I don't think it's great to create new high expectations in a game. You know, If I haven't taught it to a player, if I haven't had a chance to practice this thoroughly with a player where they understand it and know it and are committed to working on it, then I can't really pull out of my hat you know, the uh, high expectation and punish them for not meeting that expectation. So the short term is kind of the standard for coaches. Like we just practiced this yesterday. It's something a coach would say on the sideline. Maybe been the, the only time in the first time they practiced it yesterday and they're having a very high expectation for the player executing that, you know, in the chaos of the game for the very first time. And so I like to have high expectations, but take the long-term approach. Like, hey, this is a goal we have to work on over the course of a season. And when we're in the game 12 through 15, like we've talked about this, we've practiced a lot. Like this is now something our team knows about and is on the same page as the coach as far as what the expectation is. And then we have teammates holding each other accountable, a lot of other positives built into that versus having a high expectation that's really at the whim of the coach. So that's it for my 12 points. 
got a little long-winded on some of those, but our six ways to evaluate a coach in practice and six ways to evaluate them in a game. Hopefully that gives you a good solid framework to start, uh, you know, really evaluating coaches, you know, your players being evaluated in tryout. I always tell parents to and players like evaluate your coach in tryout and really take a hard look at what they're doing and how you see them being able to help you progress. And if that is not apparent, then find another program. Programs are really hungry for players, especially the more skilled you are. And so I would recommend shopping around, trying out for a lot of teams, find uh, find the best fit, find the uh, the right level and the right quality of coach and the quality of program that's really going to benefit your player. Because uh, in today's world, you really do have a lot of power to travel and to find the right fit for your player and you know, change that as needed in order to make the uh, make the next step in their journey happen. So I'll leave it at that. See you guys on the court soon.